Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And today we are barely getting feminism. So a few times in the last few episodes of this podcast, we've mentioned what we're calling white lady feminism. So to kick this episode off, this episode being about the past, the present and maybe the future of feminism, we thought we'd kind of unpack what we mean by that. So Emma, tell me, what do you mean by a white lady feminist? It's us. No, we'll, we'll get to that. But I thought to, to kind of explain what a white lady feminism, feminist is, I could use a kind of extreme example that, that comes up all the time in my line of work when I'm talking about the Trump administration, and that is Ivanka Trump. Okay. So Trump, Trump's daughter, who's very prominent, you know, she's been taken to all of these international meetings, she was at the G20 recently, is kind of emblematic, I think, of white lady feminism because Trump talks about, Ivanka Trump talks about women's empowerment, she talks about women being successful in business and women being strong. She talks about the difficulties of things like parenting or being a woman in the workplace. She's published a bunch of books on it as well, I think. And so she's kind of held up, I think, by by one, I guess, strand of liberal feminism, which we'll, again, we'll get to as this kind of successful woman and that that is inherently feminist. And we also see it, I think, when people tweet, for want of a better word, about how Ivanka is a bit of a victim in all of this. So because she's a woman, she's a prominent woman, she gets attacked for what she wears or the fact that her daddy took her to the G20 and people were mean to her. So we should feel sorry for her because she's a woman in a position of power, but she's still kind of subject to all these horrible things that women are subject to. to. But at the same time, and this I think is the kind of crucial definition of, of the white lady and white lady feminism, Ivanka Trump is upholding, perpetuating, participating in what is essentially a white supremacist administration. So that, again, is an extreme example, but to me that's kind of what white lady feminism is. Is that how you see it, Chloe? Yes. Can I give you my own example? Of course. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example which shows us also kind of the blind spots that a lot of women have about feminism and white lady feminism and its limits. You've given an example from your professional career. I'm going to give an example from TV, from my TV watching career. Way more fun. Yeah, yeah. And that is the character Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones. Okay. Are you with me? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I suppose we're more than, you know, probably a couple of months out from, since the last episode of Game of Thrones yep. aired. So no need for a spoiler warning. But basically Daenerys Targaryen was set up through the whole series of Game of Thrones as kind of a hero. And a lot of people came into the final series expecting that she would sweep all before her and end up as this incredibly benevolent ruler of Westeros, which is the um, the land at the centre of this fantasy series. People were terribly shocked when Daenerys Targaryen snapped in the last couple of episodes of the series and became a tyrannical dictator. First of all, well, I wasn't surprised by that. First of all, because... This is a character who actually built an empire on the backs of people of colour who laboured for her incessantly throughout the whole series. But didn't she liberate them? Well, that's the question. She was, she was in, in a sense, a liberator, but she was also liberating these people to her own ends. So she could equally be seen as an oppressor. Second of all, I wasn't actually that surprised because she kind of looked like Ivanka Trump. <laughs> she was the very model of that beautiful, pure 
Aryan womanhood. She's blonde. She's got blue eyes. She's just gorgeous. And I think to me, she represents both the the problems of a feminism that ignores and even oppresses um, marginalised voices within the feminist movement, um, and also the blind spot that a lot of women like us have to that. You know, we shouldn't be so surprised when beautiful women like Ivanka Trump or Daenerys Targaryen turn out to be the bad guys. And I mean, I think your mention of, of blind spot is probably a good time for us to talk about why we're talking about this, why we're talking about white lady feminism, but why we kind of started this podcast more broadly because those two things are directly related. Am I right in saying that? I think so. I think what you're trying to say here is that we're white lady feminists. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much what I'm trying to say. So we we actually, Chloe and I, you know, a few people, mostly other white ladies, have, have said to us on occasion, like, you guys should start a podcast. And it was kind of this running joke between us. And then we had this this particular moment um, over the summer where a, a friend's mum was listening to us talk. Okay, okay, full disclosure, we had a moment over the summer where we were picking grapes on Emma's husband's organic vineyard. D- so, further disclaimer, it's not his. He actually looks after it for somebody else. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It's a very important point. So so we're, we're picking grapes, being very... being. I guess, yeah. It was a fun day. It was really fun, but also extreme white ladies. And we were talking about having a very deep and meaningful conversation about whether the Little Mermaid can be considered feminist. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that's what we were talking about, of course. So a friend's mum is kind of listening to this conversation and said, oh, you girls should start a podcast. You sound exactly like Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb. Okay, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb being the very well known, um, the very very well known ABC personalities and news reporters, um, who have a massively successful podcast called Chat Ten Looks Three. So it was it was a compliment. Yeah, it was massive. It was absolutely a compliment and and meant entirely as such. But I think it made both of us kind of uncomfortable. Well, yes, because I would assume that if we had that podcast, we'd call it Chat Ten Looks Six at least. <laughs> yeah, at least obviously. But I think also kind of, um, I guess on on a more serious level, it made us uncomfortable because for us, those, you know, those kind of, um, I guess, prominent white lady commentators raise some issues for us about, about who's having conversations, who's setting the agenda and what's missed. Yeah. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think so... I'm of the position that at the end of the day, you know, maybe there's a case for women like us, for straight, cisgendered, white, middle-class class women like us to really step aside and allow the conversation about feminism to be taken up by those voices who are, you know, kind of on the margins. Um, so what we want to do before we get, before we shut up, before we send everyone to our extensive show notes is talk about the limits of feminism when its agenda is set by people like us. Exactly. So this is kind of us uh, grappling with recognising that, you know, we do have those tendencies, that we are white ladies and we, we can be white lady feminists and it's us kind of constantly countering that, trying to counter that in ourselves as best we can so that it's us kind of grappling together, I guess, with those with those tensions in us and in our privilege and the, the position that we are lucky enough to hold. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're going to talk about today is a Uh, We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the history of feminism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the modern feminist movement. And then we're going to talk about the present of feminism. 
Yeah, exactly. So we'll go back to, to my characters of Ivanka Trump at all in, in women in politics today. But we're going to end, as, as I hope we kind of just flagged, with a discussion about the, the diverse, the more diverse voices that have helped us to address our own shortcomings, I think, and to kind of think about what, a re- what real feminism looks like yeah. as opposed to white lady feminism. And for me, that means a feminism that serves all women. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about the history of modern feminism and we're going to focus on a more, I guess, what's, what's called second wave feminism. But, of course, second wave implies there was a first wave. So, Chloe, could you kind of take us through, I guess, this, the stages of the modern feminist movement? Yeah, sure. So when we talk about first wave feminism, we're generally talking about the feminism that arose throughout the Western world from the late 19th through to sort of the mid-20th centuries. And that was very much a feminism that was focused on political and legal rights, i.e. the suffrage, meaning women's right to vote. Um, an important, it's important to recognise with that that the first, the, the first wave feminism, it kind of very slowly expanded its outlook and the, you know, the groups of women that it was fighting for. So the first priority for first wave feminism was to get suffrage for middle class women. So that would be voting rights based on the qualification of property ownership. Then it gradually increased its purview to take in, say, what what it called universal suffrage, so meaning um, voting rights for all women citizens. But, of course, as we know, that wasn't universal by any means. It obviously excluded women of colour, especially. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important to note. And and too often feminists forget that or fail to mention that this isn't actually universal suffrage. You know, when we talk about women got the vote in New Zealand in X year or whatever, we have to be really careful about which women we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so so that's kind of first wave in a nutshell. And then what, what comes next? Okay, so from the 1960s and the 1970s onwards, second wave feminism sort of arose from the, from the, yeah, from first wave feminism. And what that did was it broadened feminism's outlook to bring in a lot of, of a lot of issues that are familiar to us today as, as feminists. So that means issues of sexuality, of family, of work and reproductive rights, which sadly are still terrain that we're fighting on. Can you can you give us an example of what you mean? Um, I wouldn't actually give you a direct example from history, but I would point you towards a series of books that I think did a lot more to educate me about second wave feminism, what it was like to be in that moment, mm-hmm. than, you know, your standard dry historical text would. And they're Elena Ferrante's um, Neapolitan series. Do you know them? I do. I know them well, but I haven't, yeah. I don't think I really thought about it in the context of second wave feminism. Okay. So the Neapolitan series, it's a series of four books by the Italian writer Elena Ferrante, which talk, which are about the lives of two two working-class girls who grow up in post-war Italy and their lives through to the early 2000s. And in, I think it's the, it must be the second and the third books in the series, there are these incredibly evocative passages where the main character, Lanou, she becomes involved in second-wave feminist groups throughout in, in Italy. And it's, it's extraordinary reading because you really do understand how feminism's focus very abruptly shifted from these narrow set of political and legal rights to what we understand feminism to be about today, which is those issues around sexuality, around reproductive rights, etc. So 
But at the same time, while this sounds really familiar to us today, and this is, you know, obviously the terrain that we're still fighting on, um, there is a lot of criticism coming from both ways, either from second wave feminisms criticising um, feminists today, who are generally associated with the Me Too movement, and going back the other way. So from younger feminists, our contemporaries, who are criticising second wave feminists who are intervening in these debates. Um, so the classic example would be Germaine Greer. Okay, Jermaine, Jermaine Greer, who is in a way emblematic of second wave feminism, very famous Australian feminist, probably, you know, one of the most famous feminists globally, um, but who has been extremely critical of the contemporary feminist movement, largely on two grounds. One, she has some very strongly held positions on rape that have been quite controversial over the last couple of years between Jermaine Greer's public speech, some public speeches that she's made and also a book that she published last year called On Rape. And in that book, and I, I'm really reticent to paraphrase it, so as always with this episode, I'm going to refer everyone to the show notes, an amazing essay by the classicist Mary Beard, talking about, talking critically about that book, but also kind of approvingly. So... Jermaine Greer has been criticised for her position on rape and what contemporary feminists are saying is that she really diminishes rape and its personal significance, the crime of rape. I'm not actually sure that that's the case. I think that Jermaine Greer absolutely takes rape seriously and when she says things like rape is, you know, she almost says, to paraphrase, she says that rape is normal, she's actually not saying that it's not horrific. She's saying that it is so... It's such an ordinary occurrence that we we need to respond to it as such. And that doesn't diminish women's pain, that doesn't diminish the crime of rape, but it's saying that if we're going to prevent it and deal with it effectively, then maybe we need to revise positions on, you know, on how to how to punish rapists, for instance. Does that make sense? I think it does make sense and that's really interesting because her remarks at least in the media at least were construed very differently about uh, with her kind of idea of of consent. Yes, and I think that that's that's true, and that's why I'm really without having got into in like, I haven't read on rape myself, and I don't want to hazard an opinion of it without having read it myself. And I think that this is also a place where Jermaine Greer, her talent for you know witty one-liners and devastating comebacks, it kind of comes back to bite her because you know she she's so quotable that she will inevitably be anything she says will be quoted extensively and potentially taken out of context. Yeah, absolutely. And is that because I mean rape is is not the only issue where she's come under fire relatively recently. Is is that the case you think as well with her comments on trans women? Her comments on trans women I think are pretty well, they're pretty clear cut. They're, they're despicable. Like it's yeah, pretty okay. disgusting. So basically Jermaine Greer's position is that trans women are not women. They have no, and they have no part in a women's movement. But at the same time, I think that it is important to put those comments and that perspective in its historical context, which is the context of second wave feminism, much of which was biologically essentialist. So it actually saw womanhood as wrapped up in biology. And that's absolutely not to say that what she's saying isn't outdated and offensive, but it is also part of the history and the texture of, of the women's movement and of feminism. And I think we at least, at the very least, we have to recognise that before we reject it. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, that that plays out, especially in, in somebody like Greer's politics, that plays out in really consequential ways. So so Greer, you know, I, the way that I encountered Greer was through my environmental studies because she sort of had this environmental awakening and wrote a book about, um, I guess, rewilding property in Australia, in which she kind of, I don't know, like 
discovered the Indigenous relationship with country and, and proceeded to romanticise Indigenous people's relationship with the land, but also talked about all the brilliant things she had done in revegetating this property and, and her exploration of kind of people's relationship with nature, in which she basically decided she kind of had invented this whole academic discipline, which had actually already existed for decades and she just ignored. So, so on the one hand, I'm kind of thinking, well, this is just bad academics, but but it also, ex- I think, exposed that kind of biological determinism when it comes to race and environment as well as gender. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just Jermaine Greer, who among second wave feminists has been fairly fairly strongly criticised for the exclusion of race as a subject of discussion for feminists. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and as you said earlier, it's race and it's also trans women who are, mm-hmm. who are especially kind of singled out for this disgusting treatment by, by these second wave feminists. And, and that is cruel and and hugely damaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the third thing that I would say where second wave feminism is quite different to the feminism that we know and we're experiencing today is is in the that second wave feminism was largely liberationist. So it wanted to liberate women from prescript, prescriptive gender norms. And second wave feminists today, they object to what they see as kind of the codification of sexual relations. So another place where second wave feminism is quite different from the feminism that we understand, that we're part of and that we understand today is in its liberationist outlook. So second wave feminists largely wanted to liberate women from the constraints of gender norms, which means that in in, in the current day in today they're sort of objecting to what they see as the codification of sexual relations by younger feminists. So, for instance, in the discussions that contemporary feminism is having about consent and, you know, what we really see as women calling for consent to be something that is vocal, that is enthusiastic and that is, you know, I guess just just acknowledged between all parties to sexual activity, um, a, a lot of second-wave feminists would see this as oppressive. Okay. Okay, so it's kind of, it, it's liberation, but it's not liberation from biology. Yeah. 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 Okay. Which is why, again, we have this issue with trans women and second wave feminism. And it's why we would describe, we of the Twitter sphere would describe Jermaine Greer as a turf. For those of us outside the Twitter sphere, what's a a turf? A turf is a trans exclusionary radical feminist. So it's the kind of Radical feminism that is tied, again, as we just said, to biology and not to, I guess, what we would describe as more genuine liberation. Yeah, and also to women's experience of the world as women, which includes trans women, of course. Yeah. Okay, so so let's let's leave Greer for a while. <laughs> I think it's probably best to leave, leave that behind us. So what, what comes next then after second wave? Okay, so the second wave, that was really prominent in feminism in the 60s and the 70s. What happened from the 1980s onwards as the neoliberal age began under the governments of, you know, which is um, sort of represented by the governments of Reagan and Thatcher, um, is feminism became very comfortable with capitalism. And what we saw was the emergence of a feminism that is extremely, it's very individualistic and is all about individual self-advancement. And I think this is where we're probably getting into territory that you're quite comfortable talking with. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say comfortable. Like, I, I talk about it fairly regularly, but um, I'm definitely not comfortable with it. And I, But I guess it is that kind of, I guess that, that it's weird to say, but that kind of Thatcherite 
brand of feminism where we talk about women in power and especially liberal women who are in power. And for, for me, when we you know when I talk about it, or when I'm asked to talk about it, the clearest example of that is the is the administration of Bill Clinton and the legacy of that administration. So it comes up a lot for me. Clinton, Bill Clinton, comes up a lot for me because of the, I guess, for want of a better word, the obvious parallels of having a man who has, shall we say, problematic relationship with women, occupying the most powerful office in in essentially in the world. So so I'm often asked about the Trump and Clinton comparison. And that's because during the the Clinton administration during Clinton's second term, his administration was embroiled in the scandal around Monica Lewinsky, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard about. So Clinton had a relationship with Lewinsky um and was was essentially impeached for lying about that relationship. So not the the fact of the relationship itself, but the fact that he lied about it under oath. Yep. So this is back in 1998. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Towards the end of the 90s. So so Clinton's administration, the last two years of his administration, were completely blown up by this scandal. So he's in he's in hearings. He's being subpoenaed. There there are like Congress is consumed. The administration isn't able to do anything anything else. And so I'm asked about this because, of course, the obvious comparison is that Trump, Donald Trump, has been most recently accused of of rape. I think we're up to sort of 30-plus women who have accused him of various levels of misconduct, the most recent one happening at about the same time as the Lewinsky scandal where where E. Jean Carroll, uh, a columnist, has has accused him of raping her. Um, But I'm asked in the media not necessarily about these allegations directly, but I'm asked often whether we should even be talking about it, given that, you know, less than two decades ago, whatever, this something like this. And again, that you know, people make this false equivalence. So, you know, Clinton's administration was blown up by a scandal. Why isn't Trump? And I, I guess there's a lot of things going on in in that question, but but a few of the things I would raise is that what we're seeing, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, is this kind of um, real reckoning with how we talk about relationships and how we talk about consent. So not too long ago, I would have quite sort of uh, unthinkingly talked about Clinton and Lewinsky having a consensual relationship. Well, you messaged me about that. <laughs> I did, excuse me, because I because yeah. I was I was asked about to talk about this and to comment on the kind of historical legacy again of, you know, having a president accused of rape when, you know, a couple of decades ago, this could have destroyed somebody. And and the reason I messaged you was because I, I didn't know how to describe the Lewinsky scandal because I didn't, all you know, sort of fairly suddenly I, I started thinking consent is not the right, a consensual relationship is not the right description here. And and that's because, and, you know, even, even Lewinsky kind of described it as consensual early on, but part of this reckoning we're having is, is, is kind of grappling with the fact that the power dynamics in that relationship, the power dynamics that an intern, an unpaid intern, has with the President of the United States makes this idea of consent really, really sticky. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, to go back, so you, Emma, messaged me um, before she was about to do this interview asking, oh, so can we describe the Clinton and Lewinsky relationship as consensual? I completely missed the message and she had to wing it and she did a great job. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I did. But I came back to you and that's exactly, I think that's pretty much what I said, is that I, we don't have a language to describe those relationships that are so 
where consent consent is not by any means straightforward, where there is this incredibly this incredible imbalance in the power relationship, can you meaningful meaningfully describe that as consensual? And if you can't, what is the word for it? Exactly. And and what is the word for it when you're doing a five minute pre recorded grab? in which the journalist also asks you if you feel sorry for the President Trump because he's being accused of these things and how can he defend himself? Which I'm, you know, I'm kind of going, well, how do I deal with this kind of clearly and concisely without without minimising the, que- the, the nature of that question and the way that we're kind of drawn into these false equivalences around mm. men's relationships with women, but, but also kind of grappling with the really complicated legacy that, that Clinton has left and, yeah. and, you know, those multiple other instances that we're hearing about all the time, especially in the kind of more, I guess, the left or the progressive side of politics is how we deal with men like this who historically have been seen as champions of the progressive cause. Well, can I ask, yeah, so if we think back to 1998, how did feminists respond to the Bill Clinton scandal? <laughs> Not well, I guess, is, is how I would describe it, and, and not well in hindsight. So, so basically, Lewinsky was, was thrown under the bus. Right? This, this very young woman was effectively demonised by a, what would have described itself as the progressive side of politics, you know, the New York Times, etc. Including feminists. Including feminists, people who call themselves feminists, because she was seen as torpedoing a progressive administration that was kind of upholding liberal values, that was supporting women. And so this became her fault. And the real victim in, in this, in all of this, was Hillary Clinton, was was the wife. Um, and I, I think there's been a real, you know, as part of... Me Too and the kind of revival of this movement, there's been a real attempt to reckon with the legacy of that. And that's still playing out in those tensions that you were talking about earlier with second wave feminists who were really reluctant to confront, I think, their own role in in upholding those power structures. And especially in the Clinton administration, their own really close role and, and literal investment in upholding economic and power structures. Yeah. I mean, and I've already said that when we talk about liberal feminism, we're talking about a feminism that sees individual self-advancement as a feminist aim. We're also talking about a feminism that is kind of infatuated with power and institutions. And I think that's another that also creates another blind spot. Yeah, absolutely. For people like so, us when we're trying to talk about what is feminist. Yeah, that it's that it's just inherently good to have a woman as Secretary of State, you know, as as the effective foreign minister of the United States, even or, though she's heading up basically a, a hugely damaging and racist security establishment. Or having a woman as the foreign minister in Australia, even though she's part of what is, you know, an administration that is hugely hugely damaging. Yeah, okay. But Do isn't, I thought Julie Bishop was a feminist. Julie Bishop is not a feminist. She's not? She's not. So Julie Bishop, this is a, I think this is a really good example of those limits of liberal feminism and also how when feminists get it wrong because they create these blind spots for themselves. So Julie Bishop is the former foreign minister in, in, the, um, Turnbull, in the Turnbull government. And around sort of late-ish last year, during the Lib spill, so when Malcolm Turnbull was deposed as Prime Minister and eventually Scott Morrison came in, Julie Bishop was talked up as a re- as a really strong candidate for the leadership. What happened is in sort of inner party machinations that led to Scott Morrison being elected ahead of her, she was basically marginalised by all the all the all the men of the of the Liberal Party. 
And it was really interesting because suddenly all these women, women were all jumping to Julie Bishop's defence and talking about how this was, you know, an anti-feminist action and Julie Bishop, Bishop is a great example of a strong woman in Parliament and how Parliament is the, much the less for Julie Bishop's leaving it because she did leave. She left Parliament. She retired as an MP. And what this meant was that Julie Bishop was effectively aligned with feminism and she was um, kind of tangentially celebrated, well, not celebrated, but talked about as as a victim of harassment, which is, of course, one of the focuses of the Me Too movement. But this was all forgetting that Julie Bishop isn't a feminist. And when I say that Julie Bishop isn't a feminist, Julie Bishop says she isn't a feminist. She has she spent her entire parliamentary career disclaiming any, any debt to feminism or any association with the feminist movement. So I think there's a big confusion going on when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, she becomes this feminist hero. Yeah, and she didn't even have to try very hard. Hey, she just kind of wore a pair of sparkly red shoes, and all of a sudden, she's kind of held up as this symbol, right? Well, and that's another danger spot for contemporary feminism, and especially for this white lady feminism we've been talking about, is that it's so it's quite invested in its symbols. So Julie Bishop, in that week of the leadership spill, she rocked up to Parliament wearing this, I mean, they're pretty amazing, like this incredible yeah, pair good shoes. Yeah, of red high heels. And all of a sudden people were talking about how, yeah, this is such a potent symbol for female empowerment and women's defiance against the old men in, her, in the party. But it was actually Julie Bishop kind of playing a, pulling, playing a blinder on us and trying to evoke public sympathy and sympathy from the feminist movement, which, as I've said, she actively disclaimed. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's where we have to be really careful about drawing those those false equivalences again, as you say, because, you know, I guess what what I would say to that is that, that it would be really easy to say that Julie Bishop's red shoes are the same as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's red lipstick. Yeah, tell me about that. So so what I mean by that is... is Ocasio-Cortez quite famously wore some wore bright red lipstick to I, th- I think it was to her swearing in I, m- I might be wrong but, but in a very public forum which she is now in all the time of course she wears red lipstick and her hair always looks gorgeous and her skin's lovely. I have read about her I think it was her six step Korean skincare yes. regime. <laughs> yes, we can link to it in the show notes but people ask her all the time about her beauty regime which Chloe and I have followed religiously. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's it's easy to kind of dismiss all of this as as symbolism, but I think the di- the difference is really important. So so AOC actively politicizes those acts. So she talks about them as deliberate political acts. So the red lipstick, for example, is a she talked about explicitly as a shout out to Ruth Bader Ginsburg who's the the a woman justice on the Supreme Court who was told not to wear red nail polish or red lipstick to any of her hearings because people wouldn't take her seriously, right? So, so AOC is kind of acting in defiance of those those ideas that you don't get taken seriously, and that I think is where the the difference lies because we would be quite familiar with you know people saying you won't be taken seriously if you wear sparkly red shoes or whatever but Julie Bishop is still taken seriously and the difference here is that as a Latina woman AOC has extra hurdles to jump when it comes to be taken seriously and not being dismissed and so that wearing that red lipstick is an explicit political act in defiance of of all of those norms working against her. Yeah absolutely and when you say that I mean it does remind me that I look Maya Culper here. I, you know, I often look at 
these sorts of gestures and think, oh, that's just cheap symbolism. But I also have to recognise that that's kind of a function of my comfort and my privilege. Like, I'm, I'm a white, cisgendered woman. I don't have to go to any great lengths with my appearance to be accepted socially and to be accepted in public. So those it's it's a real it's it was a real moment for me to think to think through how much that meant to someone like AOC and how yeah that is actually a really potent political statement just putting on that red lipstick for her. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of that symbolic of of a really famous feminist phrase, which is that the personal is political. Is that how you would see it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is another this is another place where we can distinguish between, say, the cheap symbolism of what Julie Bishop did by rocking up to Parliament wearing red heels and what AOC is doing, which is a much more considered and potent political act. It's about... The personal is political, for me, is about taking what is, you know, what are person, you know, personal symbols, personal behaviours and actively politicising them, okay? And this is this will, one of the ways that I have come to understand is going back to those passages in those Alana Ferrante books that I had mentioned earlier where you do see these women talking about their lives, their personal lives and actively thinking them through, turning them inside out and finding the ways of making those political and bringing those into the public realm. Okay, Chloe, sorry, I think it, it would be remiss of us to do a podcast on feminism and not mention Me Too, and this seems like a good time to bring it up because a, a question I have for you is whether you see Me Too as a, a kind of personal is political moment. I'm going to do the classic hedge here and say <laughs> yes, but. I think that Me Too is absolutely an example of how the personal can be made into the political, but we have also seen some quite recent examples of how that how how that can be fraught and how that can actually be that can rebound back on feminists and the women's movement. So I'm talking about some recent reports that came out around Tracy Spicer and the organization she set up in the wake of Me Too that was basically soliciting disclosures from women about sexual harassment, especially in the workplace, and then promising to set up support and a triage service to help them to access the resource and the support that they needed. Um, I won't go into the details of what happened, but I think that books have linked to them in the show notes, but there were two things that really struck me about those reports. One is this is something, you know, these things that can go wrong and these disclosures can end up causing, you know, causing more harm to the women who are disclosing, you know, horrible things that have happened to them when there aren't the proper structures and professional setups and professional advice there to support them. So at its, you know, at its extreme, this is an example of a celebrity kind of coming in and trying to save a situation, but not having the expertise needed to to fix that. And also not calling on help from, you know, from hardworking experts in their field who are the people who need, you know, who are set up to help victims of sexual harassment. It also points to another issue, which is that part of the reason why women aren't, you know, aren't getting the proper support and they're not getting remedies for sexual harassment or they're not getting justice is because, you know, because these services are chronically underfunded. So I think that it's a real, it's kind of misleading to say that, that personal disclosure is political in and of itself. It is something that has to be made political and that requires funding and it requires expertise. 
Okay, so this seems like a good time to to talk more deeply about the people that the writers who have influenced us when we're we're grappling with our own white lady feminism, and obviously Ferrante's is is one. Yeah, Ferrante's a big one for me. She really she's made me think about feminism and especially about that relationship between the personal and the political in a much deeper way. She's also made me reflect on the history of the feminist movement in a way that no history book has made me do previously. Yeah, which is, again, the beauty of fiction that we, we've talked about before. And for both of us, I think it goes without saying AOC is is making us think pretty hard about all kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Not the least of which is red lipstick and sheet masks, which we love, obviously. Look, I've only got to three steps of the six-step um, Korean beauty regime, but <laughs> we'll yeah, I'll, I'll eventually be as, as cool as she is. I don't know about that. I'm sorry to break it to you. I don't think either of us can aspire to that level of coolness. You haven't seen my red lipstick. <laughs> Not yet. Um, I guess the, one of the other people that's been really influential to me is Dr. Ros- Roxane Gay, who's a, an American writer, um, famous sort of famous. I guess her her breakout book was called Bad Feminist, and has more more recently written a book called Hunger. She also has a podcast with um, Dr. Tracy McMillan that you should definitely listen to. Um, but Gay has had made me think about. She writes about bodies, women's bodies, and and. I guess what it's like to be in a body in a particular body and she's she really made me think about how women occupy space so she writes about I guess how women are are, are taught to not take up space and she made me think about it in a really I guess in a in a different way because that has has was always, you know, I guess as a feminist who encountered white feminist writers, that's something we both think about, about our the way we move through space, the, our relationship in particular with men. But Gay, I read her book Hunger um, I, when I was in the US with a, with a two-year-old and, and I've actually come back to it, to it again because I had this realisation quite recently that I'm, I'm pregnant again and one of the things that, that I love about being pregnant, which I've only just realised, is that I, as a pregnant woman, it's actually one of the few times where you are allowed to take up space. Like people, blokes in particular, get out of your way. People will give up a seat for you. I'm allowed to be like lazy and obnoxious because I'm pregnant. Like I have this obvious <laughs> excuse for being that way. But the way Roxanne Gay made me think about it was that the reason that I'm even in this kind of small window allowed to take up that space in a particular way is because of who I am. It's because I'm a white lady and I I look like a pregnant woman is supposed to look. Yeah, like I, I wear the right clothes. I kind of, I look like people expect a pregnant woman to look. And so I have this moment where I'm allowed to take up space, but that's because of also because of my privileged position in this kind of societal hierarchy that we have. So for me, gay has been really crucial in in directly confronting those issues that I might, you know, I might have been peripherally aware of, but I wouldn't have thought about in such detail. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Roxanne Gay is one of the very few reasons why I ever go on to Twitter. She's she's a <laughs> yeah, she's a master she, of the medium. <laughs> she is amazing. Have I have I mentioned that I saw her interview Michelle Obama in the US? No. Go on, Emma. <laughs> You haven't, you haven't mentioned it on the podcast, but I think you probably mentioned it to me privately. Oh, 20 times? Yeah. Yeah, maybe at least, maybe 30. So I actually saw her interview um, 
Michelle Obama in Boston in in very hot Boston summer, and she was just amazing because you know there there are some I guess political contrasts between their their two worldviews. Michelle Obama is probably more of like black her husband I guess more of a liberal than than gay would consider herself, but they had this extraordinary on an honest conversation about being human and and I just had the most you know embarrassing fangirl moment along with like 3,000 other white fangirls. But it, it is, you know, she is an extraordinary writer and speaker because she's both incredibly challenging but also incredibly human and allows her readers to be human as well. Okay, so so that's one of my really influential um, people, I guess. What about you, Chloe? Um, so I would like to talk about a book I finished at just last night. Um, which is Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do. Jess Hill is an Australian investigative journalist and she spent the last five years looking at and writing about domestic abuse. Um, And See What You Made Me Do is kind of the culmination of a lot of the journalism she's been doing over those five years. First thing I'd say about that is that I highly recommend the book, but it is incredibly challenging. So fair warning, just, you know, it's a book book that's well worth reading, but it is very confronting. Um, but the, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I really liked this book is because it, I think, is an example of how white women can write about, can write about a feminist issue, domestic abuse, in a really inclusive way. And the first reason is that she really emphasises talking about the barriers that Indigenous women, working class women and disabled women face when gaining assistance and confronting domestic abuse and also because of the way she writes. So she's very deliberate in taking from case studies and really respectfully doing so from women who she's spoken to and really kind of just amplifying their voices. So it's not a case of her writing about people in order to push her point. It's very much about her giving people voice, and I really admire that in her writing. So, yeah, I think that's if you want to read that, and I think that that's a really, it's a book that's well worth picking up. So, and it sounds like an example or a, a good example of a white, white woman writing about intersectionality well. Yes. That, yeah, I would, I would, uh, yeah, that's what I would think. And, you know, this is off one reading, finished late last night, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm amazed you're reading that late at night before bed. Yeah, I'm not sleeping well. <laughs> I can imagine. And I think, I mean, the other person that we, wanted to mention, and it, and again, this is very explicitly related to this question of, of white lady feminism, and that's someone who's had an influence on both of us, I think, is Ruby Hamad. Yeah, Ruby Hamad, who is, is an Australian journalist. So Ruby Hamad, she writes about a lot of topics, but particularly I found her writing quite eye-opening when she writes about how white women weaponise victimhood. And this is sometimes without any shred of awareness and often with what they think are good intentions. So about how white white women weaponise their victimhood in order to silence and marginalise women of colour. Which which was, like, amazingly dramatised in the the final of the ABC series, Get Crackin'. Okay, another, yeah, so moving on from books into TV. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tell me, tell me more about that, Em. So this is, this is the kind of final episode of their, their spoof. I'm sure lots of people have seen it and we can link to it, of um, Australian Morning TV where two Indigenous women kind of take over the, the show that's led by two white ladies and they have this moment where an interior decorator who they are kind of asking really gently about the fact that she's talking about mansions or something 
starts crying because she feels attacked by two two black women. And that, I think, is what Hamad writes about, obviously in a much more serious way than than the crew of Get Kraken, but it, but it is this idea about white women weaponising their victimhood. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was a really good example of how white women can sometimes address this issue of our limited perspective and the fact that we don't have all the answers by actually stepping aside. So the two Kates, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney, they shared, co- they shared co-writing duties on that um, episode with Nakia Louie, the, the playwright, um, and it really was them just stepping aside and letting black women speak and letting black women own that space. Um, I mean... Look, I think that's a great model to follow. I've, I like to think that Emma and I are a bit like the Kates, except that we're not funny. We're just kind of depressing. <laughs> it's a crucial difference. Yeah, but I think that that is really, having spoken for what, we've chatted for about 40 minutes about this, I do think that that is one of the important lessons, is knowing when women like us should shut up. So I think that's where we're going to end the podcast. Yeah, I think with us shutting up. With us shutting up, but also really encouraging people to take a good look at the show notes um, where we really want to give people the opportunity to engage with some of these voices that we have found confronting and influential um, and really made us reassess where we stand in relation to feminism today. Yeah, absolutely, and and to do our best not to be those white lady, lady feminists. 